And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Skip down to verse 21. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to their voice and appoint them a king. And so Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. As we continue in our study through the word, we find the people of Israel once again discontent. Once again, not happy with their circumstances. And this whole idea we've talked about before, discontent, it remains the source of so much of our life troubles. It seems to me when I get discontent with what the Lord is doing or how the Lord is acting or, or, or where I am in life, when I get discontent, I stop listening and I, I start focusing on myself and everything goes inward. Paul says in Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Paul later wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. That Israel's discontent is now about to bring about an historic and unfortunate transition in their lives. Israel is leaving the theocracy where God would be king, where God reigns over them, and they are entering into the monarchy under the rule of man. This is their choice. This is their desire. And I think, why would Israel want this? And they give the reason very explicitly in chapter 8. They say, we want to be like the nations. Give us a king like the nations. We want to live the way they live. We look at the other nations around us. We want a king. They have a king. Give us a king. Well, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. The very thing Israel was longing for, the Lord gave to them. And I'm reminded of Psalm 106.13 that says, They soon forgot His works. They waited not for His counsel. They lusted exceedingly in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. And He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. The truth is, gang, our very desires can lead to our destruction. Our requests, especially made outside of Christ, bring about leanness to our souls. And it's not because that's what God wants for Israel. It's the people's choice. That's what they're looking for. They want to make a kingdom. They want to be a kingdom. Like the nations of the world, they say, we're going to do it. We can do it. Just give us a king. And let him rule over us and everything will be good. But we're going to walk through this transition this morning. Understand a little bit of the warning that God gives to the people of Israel. And consider what this means for them. But we need to begin back just a little bit in chapter 7, verse 15, and look at Samuel and look at where this transition started. 
Verse 15 of chapter 7 says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And you've heard me say before, he's a wonderful judge, Samuel. Constantly in prayer to the Father. He's always taking it back to the Lord to seek the Lord's counsel. He is, to my mind, much like Moses in his interaction with the Lord. He listens to the Lord. He talks to the Lord. When he has trouble with the people, instead of taking it out on them or just being frustrated, he immediately repeats to the Lord everything that he hears. He is so much like Moses. He is my favorite of the judges, and I believe the greatest of the judges. And you look at verse 16, it says, He used to go annually on circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. So he didn't just make them come to him. He went to them. He truly had a pastor's heart. Going from place to place, caring for, nurturing, delivering the people spiritually. He is the most spiritual of all the judges. Verse 17, he said, Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there, and there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So even at home, the altar was there. He would go out and judge Israel, but when he came home, he didn't leave that outside. He brought it right to his heart and worshipped the Lord there in his very house. But then it tells us that it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. And here's where the problem begins. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judging in Beersheba, and their names are great. Joel means Jehovah is God. Abijah means Jehovah is Father. Samuel's intentions in naming his sons were right on target. Jehovah is God, Jehovah is Father. This is what he names his boys because this is his hope for his sons. I don't know if you've done that. Those of you who who have had kids, you look at your kids and when you name them, you you do so for a specific reason. You you hope that they're going to aspire to something, so possibly you name them a a certain thing. Corey's name uh, means out of the woods. We just like the name Corey, but you know now I'm not not sure. We sometimes try and get him out of his room, but that's a different thing, you know. Hannah's name means Grace. Hayden. I don't even know what Hayden's name. I'll have to look that up. In our culture, we don't think of names like they did in Hebrew culture. And Samuel, with his two little boys, when they're born, he looks at them and says, I want Jehovah to be God for this boy. I want Jehovah to be Father for this boy. His heart was in the right place. But something happened. Obviously, it says in verse verse 3 that his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after their dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Sadly, their God was not Jehovah. Their father was not Yahweh. Samuel's hopes for his own son fell apart as they chased after a different God by the name of money. And they were corrupted by it. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.10, The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And remember this, money itself is not a bad thing. But longing for it, seeking after it, hungering for it, and desiring it may pierce you with many griefs. I have felt that piercing, <laughs> especially around Bill's time, you know, when you sit down to pay. You, you feel pierced because you, it's not something that will lead to the happiness that we so desire. Proverbs 12, 12 says, The wicked desires the net of evil men. Literally, the net worth is what it's saying. The wicked desires the net of evil men, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. Now consider Samuel. When he was a boy, he was raised in the house of Eli, there at the tabernacle, and he watched Eli's sons, who were a couple of wicked, sinful guys. Their problem was lust. And they had it in abundance. 
And now Samuel watches his own boys given not to lust, but to what the Bible calls lucre, which is dishonest gain. It's not money as evil, but it's the root of all evil, that dishonest gain, that covetousness. And you might say, well, well if, if Samuel is such a righteous guy, such a deliverer of Israel, how is it that his kids went so far off the deep end? Some might say, well, they're preacher's kids. <laughs> they're PKs, prophet kids, you know. And if you look back at chapter 7, there's something to that. What's he doing? He's out there riding circuit, verse 16. From Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, he's judging Israel. He is doing the work of the prophet. It sounds like he may have been very much the busy prophet who loved Israel, delivered the people, possibly to the neglect of his own family, possibly to the abdication of his role as father at home. Proverbs 22.6 tells us to train up a child in the way he should go and even when he's old he will not depart from it. And I confess to you this is for me one of the most frightening things about ministry is the thought that any one of my kids would eventually wander away from the truth. Because the church was more important to, to dad than they were. And that's easy to happen. Corey can attest to you. I'm not going to make him come up and give testimony this morning. But he can tell you there, there are busy times. There are times where he just wants me to, to see something that, that he's, he's been working on. And, and I have to put it off. And it's tomorrow or it's the next day before we finally sit down. And, and that scares me. It does. I think about what the Apostle John said in, in uh, 3 John verse 4. He says, I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. Son, that's my greatest hope for you. Is to hear my children walking in the truth. And that's what I think any parent would obviously want. But I've also seen something else happen. I've seen the children of good, godly parents who trained them right and trained them well and gave them all the nurture they needed and I see them still end up messed up. Some of you know this. Some of you have raised your children only to watch them go off. Some of you have been raised in families where you know your mom and dad did the best they could and you know your mom and dad gave hands and feet to the gospel. But you have a brother or a sister that are whoop, out there. And you wonder, how is this possible? I love the Lord so much and I can attribute it so much to my folks and to the environment at home. And my brother, my sister, they were in that same place. And yet now they're, they're somewhere else. They've abdicated it completely. Listen. Whether you're a parent whose child has gone off. Or you're a brother or sister of someone who has gone off. Wherever you are at this morning with that, understand for all the righteous upbringing and training in the world, there is a variable that we must recognize. And the variable is this. The people's choice. The people's choice. I've had, and especially in youth ministry, numerous conversations and counseling sessions with parents who were weeping over where their children were at and they had tried so hard and could not understand. And my answer to them is exactly what we're seeing here this morning. It's the people's choice. For mom and dad, regardless of how much you try and pour into a child the gospel of Jesus Christ, there comes a day when they have to receive it or reject it. And it is their choice. And you pray and you hope and you desire that they will choose the Lord. But it is their choice ultimately. They must make it. They must own it. You cannot own it for them. The people's choice. 
Verse 4 goes on and says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being king over them. And to me this is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture, in the entire history of Israel. God saying, You're not the one, Samuel, who was rejected. I am. They rejected me. Do you think your heavenly Father doesn't know what it's like to be a parent whose children have rejected Him? A parent whose children have rebelled? We think our kids are messed up. We agonize over our families. Look at the Lord's children. And you got to know, it's not because he failed as a parent. It's because as a father, before the first one of us was born into the world, God made a heartbreaking, painful, but necessary decision. The people are going to have choice. I'm going to let them choose. I'm going to give them every reason under the sun to choose me. But they still have to choose. It's up to them. And so the first two children born into the world rebelled in Eden. The third child born into the world, Cain, murdered the fourth child, Abel, just outside of Aden. And it all went downhill from there. Unbelievable. When I talk about the children of the Lord, I'm not just talking about the church. We're talking about the human family and the human condition of sin and rebellion and rejection. And as we talked about judgment last week, before we began pointing fingers at the sins of the world around us, understand this. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Every act of sin, every act of rebellion in the world, whoever it may hurt among us as kids, ultimately is truly directed to the Lord. They have not rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. Mothers and fathers, if your children have rejected you, guess what the Lord would say? They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. Because it all comes back to, it all points to Him... He is the one who's been rejected. Unbelievable. We love to know who is to blame. That's the first thing the uh, pundits and the, and the people on the news want to talk about, is who is to blame. When there's any tragedy, when there's any natural disaster, when bridges fall or towers go down or, or countries are attacked or war continues on and on, everybody wants to point the finger blame. Who is it that's to blame? And David got it right. David, not not the first king, but the second king of Israel, got it absolutely right. Psalm 51, verse 3, he said, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Samuel is discouraged. He's dispirited. And so he prays to the Lord. He took it to the Lord. And here's the shocker to me. Samuel takes it to the Lord and the Lord takes it on himself. Samuel is feeling rejected by the people and the Lord takes it directly off of Samuel's shoulders and puts it on his own shoulders. God shoulders the blame. Does that sound familiar? It's something that God has done time and time again throughout history. He shoulders the blame. Ultimately, he shouldered the cross. 
which is the brutal picture of our sin. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. You know what Isaiah is saying there in that prophecy? He's saying we look at Jesus and we say, Man, He must have done some bad stuff. (laughs) Because God has stricken Him. He's afflicted by God. God's pouring out His wrath on this poor guy on the cross. Boy, He really must have sinned. That's the way it looks to the world. Isaiah goes on in Isaiah 53 verse 4. He says, But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. Because all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The people's choice. We have all chosen that rebellion. Just as Israel chooses to have a king from the nations as opposed to a king from the heavens. So we are in that same boat. And it's our sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And it's our sin that he shouldered. And it's our blame that he took. And that's the wonder of the cross and the wonder of grace. That he took on himself what belongs to me. I'll tell you something about the nature and character of the God I serve. And if you're not a believer, by the way, this morning, and I assume at first hour most of you probably are, but if you're not, you need to understand this about the character and nature of God. He takes the blame on himself. So much of the non-Christian world looks at God and, and they, they shy away because they think that He's a blaming God when the reality is He is a blame-taking God. And He takes it off of us and puts it on Himself. He carries the punishment I deserve and the greatest proof of that is the cross. Paul puts it this way. Romans 5.8 says God demonstrated His own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let me prove it to you. He takes the blame. So it's no surprise here when he says to Samuel, it's not you Samuel, it's me. I'm the one being rejected here. Jesus would later say in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How's that? How's that, Jesus? How did they persecute the prophets before us in the same way? They persecuted the prophets because of the Lord. They rejected Samuel because they were rejecting God. And he says, if you're ever rejected, especially in trying to teach the word to somebody and and trying to bring Jesus into someone's life, if you're ever rejected for that, guess what? Praise God, because the rejection is not yours. It's His. He shoulders that. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it has hated you. I wonder, Jesus, what's that like? to be nothing but love and be yet so hated God is love He is the full full definition of love in and of Himself Jesus walked the earth loving people and was hated for it and you and I though we may have been uh, we may have been driven out by people we may have, have been cast out or uncared for you and I cannot fathom what it's like to be love and be hated Jesus can he understands that the Lord can and that's that's really what's happening in this chapter 
Verse 8 going on, the Lord says to Samuel, Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. You know what that means? That means on the day that they were rolling out of Egypt, there were Israelites worshipping pagan gods. On that first day, up until now, God says, it's been a daily occurrence in Israel. Now then he says, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. I love that word, procedure. What is the procedure of the king? And in this we see the grace of the Lord because before he gives them their choice, before he responds, he tells them exactly what their choice is going to mean. This is what you want. Let me tell you what the procedure is going to be. What it's going to look like. And then make your choice. Verse 10. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, This will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen. And they will run before his chariots. In other words, they're going to war. Your sons are going to be taken out of your house and they're going to be sent to war. He will appoint for himself for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and of your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. This is his procedure, his policy manual. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You want to be like the nations of the world, God says, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. And this is exactly what it will cost you. The Lord gives five consequences here of having a king like the nations, of wanting to make the kingdom as opposed to waiting for the Lord to bring the kingdom. You want to make a kingdom? You want to look like the world? You want to act like the world? And I believe this message is to the church today. You want to be relevant like the world is relevant? This is what you'll get. I want you to think this through this morning. Compare the nation's king ideals to the Lord as king. What the Lord says will happen when they get a king. Number one, he says the king will turn you into fighters. A king will turn you into fighters. He is going to institute the military draft. And your sons will now go to war at the whim of a king. The contrast to the Lord is that my king is a warrior king who fights before me. The Lord goes into battle before me. This is what had just happened with the Philistines. The people of Israel could have this fresh on their minds. 1 Samuel 7.10 says, The Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. This is what God would do as your king. Go before you and fight for you. If you want to look like the nations, you're going to do the fighting. But if you want the Lord as king, he will fight before you. He will bring about the miraculous. Jericho, blow a trumpet, tear down a wall. He will go before you. Like with Gideon. How did Gideon and his men, his little 300 army men, overtake the huge army of the Midianites that he was fighting? How did he do that? With a pot and a shofar and a candle. Weapons of war. 
But this is when the Lord goes before us. When God is king. And yet Israel wants their own king. And he says, well then you're going to fight. Genesis 15.1 One of my favorite verses in all of scripture. The Lord speaking to Abraham says, I am your shield. And your very great reward. Not only will I shield you in the battle, but I will reward you after the fact for what has happened. For what, Lord? For my victory. I'll give you the reward for my victory. I am your shield. Well, the king will not only turn you into fighters, he says to Israel. That's verses 11 and 12. Verses 12 and 13, he says, in essence, a king will tear apart your families. Your sons and your daughters are going to be forced into servitude and labor for the sake of the king as opposed to serving at home in your flocks, in your fields, in your family. He's going to tear you apart. He's going to take you apart. That's what a king of the nations would do. But the Lord is a servant king where service is a great blessing to anyone involved. Jesus said in Matthew 11.29, a verse we read often around here, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He compares himself to an ox, yoked up out in the field, drawing into the field, plowing. And he says, come hook up to me. Take my yoke, which is on my shoulders, put it on your shoulders and walk with me. It's easy, it's light, it's not a burden. You want to serve with me, it will make life better. And Jesus says this, and this is an absolutely shocking, shocking verse. Listen to him. I only believe it because it's in red letters. <laughs> I only believe it because it's in the Word, and Jesus said it. Luke 12, 37, he says, Blessed are those slaves who the Master will find on the alert when He comes. Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he will come up and wait on them. That is mind-boggling. If my understanding is correct, what Jesus is saying is when he comes, if you are on the alert, you are among those people looking for him, longing for him, he will have you recline at the table and Jesus, the servant king, will serve you. And I can see most of us being like Peter saying, <laughs> no, 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 I'll serve you, Lord. But with great joy, I can see Jesus' eyes and see him serving because this is what the servant king does. Kings of the nations of the world, they'll take away your families, tear them apart. The servant king says, no, I'll come and I will serve in your household. Among your children, I will serve. What other king offers to serve his subjects? But the Lord. But the people want a king like the nation, so they're going to get a king that will turn them into fighters, a king that will tear apart their families. Number three, a king who will trim their fruit. A king that will trim their fruit. Verses 14 through 17, basically it tells us he will take the best of your produce and appropriate your property for his property. You got good land, if the king has an eye for it, he'll take it. You have good fruit on the trees out there, he'll, he'll get them. He'll take it for himself. My king, King Jesus, gives me fruit. Puts his fruit in me and on me. Psalm 1 verse 2 says, The person whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. You see, life under my king, King Jesus, is a life of, of him giving me the fruit. 
And it's not fruit in terms of dollar signs gain. It is fruit in terms of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. He gives the fruit. He doesn't take it. A king who will turn you into fighters. A king who will tear apart your families. A king who will trim your fruit. Number four, the king of the nations. You want that kind of king? He is a king who will tax you forcefully. He's going to take a tenth of seed and a tenth of your flocks. You might say, wait a minute, Rick. Hang on. Because that sounds like God. I've heard you stand up there and talk about the tenth. The tithe. And by the way, I understand many people struggle with this. This idea of tithing. I get that. There are those who vehemently disagree with my position that the best thing a believer can do is begin, in terms of your giving, is begin with tithing. Start at 10% and see what the Lord does. And I know it's a struggle. I've shared many times that I struggled for 35 years of my life with the whole concept of tithing. And I didn't believe what the Lord said about it. Let me read you what the Lord said. Malachi 3.10 Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Bring the whole tithe. So, so apparently a king of the nations will take a tithe, take his 10%. So, so does our king. But listen to the result of tithing to our king. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. And then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. All the nations will call you blessed, for you shall be a delightful land. And that's the part we don't buy. You mean if I give 10% to the Lord and trust Him with that, it's kind of a quid pro quo, I give Him that and He's going to take care of me? God is saying, look, I wish you would just trust me. Because if you will, if you will take that leap, if you will give me the tithe, the nation's king says, you give me the tithe, I'm going to take it. God says, you give me the tithe, I will show you my hand of providence like you can't imagine. The exact phrase here is, See if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. I have a friend who I had just heard about recently talking to Cheryl. I don't think it's someone you all know, but it's beside the point I won't name any names. But a friend who who came into some, some difficulty, some struggle, and determined for a short time to take their tithe for their church and use it to pay take care of this issue, the struggle. And they wanted to know Cheryl's opinion on it. Well, what do you think about that? Should I do that? To which Cheryl quickly responded, don't ask me, that's between you and the Lord. It's not my call. However, if you want my opinion, I'll give it to you, but you need to talk to and pray to the Lord about it. And she said, my opinion is, if you will continue to tithe, God will provide for that situation. He will take care of it. That for me, gang, for 35 years was my issue. I understood this part. If I give to the Lord, then that's a good faith thing. What I didn't understand was that He will provide for this over here. Then get that. That's a faith step, and it's a hard one to take. But our King wants to build up your faith through His fruitful provision. 
And God understands something about his mentality. So when he looks at us, he can say, look, if you, if you entrust that first fruit, that first 10% to me, which I know for many is hard to do, if you'll do that, I can then turn around and show you my graceful provision. If you don't do that, if you keep it and you use it to pay your bills, to pay your mortgage, to take care of your struggles, then how are you going to know the provision is from me? You might just say, boy, it's good that I held that back because I really needed it over here this month. Instead of, I gave it to the Lord when I didn't have it to give. And He provided. Praise God. He wants you to enjoy His provision. That's, that's the concept between, behind our king's call to a 10%. Very different than the kings of the world who just want it for themselves. The increase of taxation. Well, number five. Number five. And probably the most important to hear this morning is this. The king of the nations will take away your freedom. Well, not here in America. Yes, here in America. We are not so free as we think we are. The king of the nations will take away your freedom. Our God is the king of freedom. Our God brings freedom. Our king would that you have complete freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Where God resides, where He is invited, where He is King, there is a freedom that you cannot experience any other way. Galatians 5.1, Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. The Lord goes through and He gives this, this great contrast. Here's what the kings of the world will do to you. Here's what it will look like. In contrast to that, think about the Lord. Think about what He as King over your life, over my life, in our life would do. What kind of a leader, what kind of a ruler. And when people say, now we got to make the kingdom happen, I say, I don't want a kingdom that is built by human hands. I want to see the kingdom that Jesus brings. Because any human effort is going to end up with some problems. We go back 200 years to our nation's founding and it's a great story. But sin was infused in that. And sin has made its way across 200 years in our culture so that we have the kinds of problems and taxation and lack of freedoms that we have right now. Our sons, our daughters going to war. And this is not an anti-war statement, by the way. Don't try and turn it into that. We would not be where we are right now if this nation of ours wasn't built by the hands of man. Yes, God was part of it. Yes, it was a Judeo-Christian ethic that was laid in the foundation. That's why America did anything good. But for all of it, there is a touch of the sin nature. And when man tries to build it, we mess it up. We corrupt it. This church, if we don't continually draw back and say, Lord, what do you want to do? This church will end up infused with the sin nature. We can't help it. We will infect things. And so we repent. And so we constantly confess. Go back to the Lord and say, Lord, we want you. We want what you want. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom that I am looking for. That's the coming king that I long for. Well, Samuel gives them this whole thing. And in verse 21... It says that now, nevertheless, verse 19, go to verse 19, it says, Nevertheless, 
After this explanation, nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, so that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And it's the most tragic word in the entire chapter. Second, well, second most tragic word. The most tragic is, they have rejected me. Second most tragic statement in this chapter, nevertheless. Nevertheless. The Lord says, let me tell you what it's going to be like. Nevertheless. This is what will happen if you get what you ask for. Nevertheless. Your discontent is going to lead to your destruction. Nevertheless. Your request is going to bring about the leanness of your soul. Nevertheless. We want a king like the nations have. We want it our way. It's the people's choice. And so verse 21 says, Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. Verse 21 and verse 6, same thing. Samuel prayed to the Lord. Samuel repeated the words of the people in the Lord's hearing. He just went back to the Lord again and again and again. My best week is when... I get all kinds of ideas about what's supposed to happen at the bridge and I take it before the Lord. My worst week is when I get all kinds of ideas about what should happen to the bridge and I let them weigh me down. I unfortunately probably have more bad weeks than good in that respect. (laughs) But you let it weigh you down instead of taking it to the Lord. Samuel, oh, praise God. Samuel does the right thing. He repeated all the words of the people in the Lord's hearing so that the Lord can handle it. Verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. A few hundred years later, the prophet Hosea comes on the scene. And Hosea gives commentary for this chapter, for 1 Samuel chapter 8. In Hosea 13, verse 9, he prophesies the Lord speaking, and the Lord says in Hosea 13, verse 9, It is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king, that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges, of whom you requested, give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. Where now, Israel, is the king you asked for? Where now is the king who would save you? I like the way the King James translation puts it, that the Lord is saying, I would be your king. I would be your king. Who else can save you? I would be your king. And two times, gang, in Israel's history, they made a tragic choice involving the establishment of a king over Israel. And the first time is right here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They demand a king like the nations. But the second time came a thousand years later when Israel rejected another king. John 19 verse 14 says it was the day of the preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour and Pilate Pilate, after having Jesus beaten unrecognizable, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And so they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. And so what happened in a thousand years is Israel transferred from wanting a king like the nations to being under the nations. 
and the king being Caesar. They rejected God as king in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and there on the weekend of the crucifixion they rejected the real king who God had sent. And the rest is history. The people's choice is the people's calamity. You see, God had intended a king for Israel all along. From this point in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 400 years earlier, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 15 through 20, and you can read that on your time, the Lord describes through Moses to the people what a king will be like, what the future kings will be required to do in Israel. Assuming that he's going to give them a king. This is before they even ask. God had prepared for them to have a king. And he describes it and he defines it. Go back 400 years even before that, before Deuteronomy, back in Genesis 49, verse 10. Old Jacob is on his deathbed and he's speaking to his son Judah and he says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So 800 years before this moment when the people cry out for a king like the nations. Back there with old Jacob. He tells Judah that there's going to be a ruler who will come from his family and that rule in Israel will be from the tribe of Judah. As we will see as we continue on in 1 Samuel, the first king of Israel is not from the tribe of Judah. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. King Saul comes from Benjamin, not from Judah at all. Well, why? I thought the ruler was supposed to come from Judah. Because, and listen to me, no ruler could come from Judah yet. There was a curse on the line of Judah. Because Judah himself had had an illegitimate son with a woman named Tamar back in Genesis 38. And the law said if an illegitimate child was born, no one of that family line could enter into the Lord's assembly for ten generations. Deuteronomy 23, verse 2 tells us that. Ten generations from Judah led all the way up to the tenth generation was a man named Jesse who could not rightfully ascend to the throne, but his son could, David. David could. Which is why I've said before, I believe David was God's choice for the throne all along. That he was going to give a king, but it would be a king within his theocratic rule. A king who was a man after God's own heart. A king who loved the Lord and who wanted to serve the Lord. He was going to bring a king through Judah, but the people couldn't wait. We want a king now. We want a king our way. We want to build our own kingdom. And so he said, all right, I'll give you Saul. Saul, who we already saw on Wednesday night, he started well. That will fall apart pretty fast. That the people's choice would be exemplified in Saul, a temporary despot who is not even from Judah. They demanded it a generation too soon. God's choice was David. Because on that throne, in that line, ultimately the great king would come, our King Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9.6 says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Not the hard work of man. Not the best intentions of humanity. Not the church doing everything it can to create the kingdom on earth. We don't have it in us, gang. 
We have a choice though. The Lord says, I would be your king. I would be your king, but the choice is yours. What kind of king do you want? A king like the nations? Who will tax you and weaken you and harm you and mess you up? A people's choice? Or do you want the Lord's choice, King Jesus? I absolutely believe that God's best is always given to those who leave the choice up to Him. Those who would say, I have free will, I've been given choice, but I choose today to return that choice to Jesus, my King. I choose today to abdicate my choice. I don't want to be in control of my life anymore. I don't want to rule here from the throne of my own heart anymore. I give it up. I'm going to hand this over to the Father, to Jesus. And I'm going to ask Him to rule. That's what you're saying when you say Jesus is Lord. And if you want that this morning, whether you're a believer in Jesus in this moment or not, if you have made a choice for Him, then let's bow together and let's tell Him. Jesus, we so desperately need a King because we see what our own self-rule accomplishes. Oh Lord, sometimes great things, but always infected things. And so this morning, and if you desire to do this, again, whether you've done this before or not, if you desire to give complete authority and rule to Jesus over your life, just, just put your hand over your heart where you're sitting as a sign before, between you and the Lord. And repeat in your heart to the Father, to Jesus, say, Lord Jesus, I give up my throne. Lord Jesus, I desire your rule and your rule alone. I pray that you will be in my life the absolute authority. I pray your kingdom authority, your kingdom rule over my heart, over my attitudes, my actions, my thoughts. I ask that you will be Lord of it all. And this morning I give up my right even to choose. And I say, Jesus, I choose you. I choose you because of the crucifixion. I know that you chose to take my place on the cross. I choose you because of the resurrection. I know that you broke the chains of death and you live today. And I choose you as my Savior and as my Lord in Jesus' name. Amen.